Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologize for the lower sound quality. Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we talked to Gabriel Krux-Wissner, Assistant Professor of Politics and Global Studies at the University of Virginia. Gabriel's research examines citizenship practices and global governance with a regional focus on India. Today, we will discuss the problems that citizens face in northern rural India, a setting noted for variable public administration and often callous treatment of citizens by officials. You can find more information about Gabrielle and her work in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. So hi, Gabby. It's great to have you with us. And I really love your work that often looks at questions about how citizens try to hold officials accountable and what kind of mechanisms that they can use to do so. So you've done a lot of work in northern India. Um, a lot of it very close to the ground and talking to a lot of people and doing a lot of both theoretically interesting and methodologically rigorous work. So I wanted to invite you today to talk to us about what kinds of findings you have regarding their ability to hold officials accountable. So maybe you can start, though. I think not everybody knows about northern India and the problems that rural citizens there face. So maybe you could just start by describing a little bit the kinds of problems that people are trying to solve. Yeah, sure. And I should start by saying thanks, Ellen, for having me on. Um, this is really fun. I I first had a chance to present a little bit of this this work at one of the GLD conferences a couple of years ago and got great feedback. And it's um, that, that was a great experience. The problems that citizens face in northern India, and this will resonate with experiences across the global south in emerging democracies where you see a set of paradoxes. You see, on the one hand, new rights being legislated. You see new social welfare programs. You see kind of the the rise of what you could call kind of social constitutionalism. There, There are more rights on paper. There are more programs on paper. There's more uh, kind of footprint of the state in terms of administering a whole range of different welfare rights and entitlements. And what that looks like on the ground is incredibly different. So there's this paradox between the kind of the state getting bigger in people's lives in terms of being able to provide essential services and rights and entitlements. And then from the bottom up, that's still looking really elusive and really uneven and really unequal. But at the same time, visible. So citizens can kind of look around and say, hey, I see that there's a new program that can provide a subsidy for me to build a new house. And I see that because I know these other people over there have access to that. But but how do I get there? Or I see that that community a couple of kilometers away has a new hand pump for better quality drinking water. But I know that we don't have one. And so there's this kind of paradox of being able to see a more active, expansive set of service provision, and also seeing that that is incredibly uneven and incredibly hard to access. And those barriers to access are largely about the state still feeling really remote, really obscure, kind of a black box. Citizens are trying to, they they see goods and services and programs and entitlements, and then it's a mystery how to navigate from the bottom up and actually figure out kind of whose ear do I need to get? What channels do I need to pursue? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to talk to? And what I write about a lot is that citizens are 
tenacious and savvy, right? They, from the bottom up, are coming up with like really creative strategies, constantly sort of trying new avenues, some of which map onto classic things that we look at in political science, like clientless networks, but some of which look nothing like that. So it's, it's this unevenness and that citizens are acutely aware of the unevenness and trying to kind of navigate that unevenness. So one of the projects or programs that you talk about is this program of, that basically kind of has community correspondence, right? And they essentially form social brokers. So when you're talking about, okay, how do I get this and how do I get there? And some of the kind of creative projects or programs that might emerge to address that, it seems like this is one of those. So this is one of the ways in which people have tried to say, okay, how can we try to figure out how to get information? How can we figure out how to get the government's ears? Can you describe that program a little bit and how effective it is? So the community correspondence, this is work that I'm developing with an NGO partner in India called Video Volunteers. And Video Volunteers is India's largest uh, community journalist network. It's an NGO that supports a whole network of citizen journalists across India, about 200 to 250 of, of these individuals who they call community correspondents. And essentially, they are local problem solvers, activists, social workers in their communities who, with some help from the NGO, some training on advocacy, some training on kind of journalistic technique, how to frame and tell a story, and some technology, so a tablet or a smartphone, are going out and using the cameras on their phones to basically film grievances at the local level. A broken hand pump, an absent school teacher, a bunch of residents who have been waiting for months and months for payment from a government work site, or a bunch of elderly citizens who haven't received their pensions, and they'll film and document these grievances. So you have sort of the video evidence. But then what's really interesting is they use these videos in two directions. They face two different audiences. One, they show these videos to local officials at the district level, which is kind of equivalent to the county level in the United States, and try to use these videos to get their foot in the door, to get the ear of the officials, to sort of make a claim on that official that this is a problem that should be addressed. And at the same time, they're using the same videos and showing them to the community and trying to galvanize and motivate community members to accompany them in the claim-making process because there's power in numbers, in the, like look shakti, people power. So if you can bring people with you, your claim will be more effective. So they are developing these videos but then using them and framing them in totally different ways to talk to two different audiences, one vertically to talk to officials and one horizontally to talk to their peers and community members and try and bring people with them. And what's fascinating about it is they have to frame the same thing, the same information, the same problem in totally different ways. They have to use different frames and different sets of motivation and different sets of language to bring these different sets of citizen and government actors along with them. So this has been really interesting work because it sort of sits at the intersection of what can provoke government accountability on the one hand, but also active citizenship and the mobilization of demand making at the community level. And you have some notions in, in terms of how, I find it really interesting, you basically say that not everybody is equally good about sort of talking to the citizens or talking to the government officials, right? So the kind of ways in which the best case scenario is the person who can mobilize the citizens as well as get the ear of the official and essentially be what you call the interlocutor. But then you also say that, unfortunately, that's a fairly rare breed, right? That we often see either people who can mobilize on the one hand, but not get the ear of the official, or who can 
get the ear of the official, but not really have kind of that grassroots mobilization capacity, right? So I'm, I'd like to hear a little bit more about why some people are better placed to do one thing or another. In other words, once we break down the idea about social brokers, how do we see these as different and how do they tap into individuals' lives? Yeah, absolutely. So this is work that is emerging after a couple of years of largely qualitative work alongside the NGO partner, alongside video volunteers, working with a a team of fantastic research associates who basically went out and spent a lot of time with these communities correspondents who were terming social brokers, shadowing them, following them, doing long extended interviews with them, also doing focus group discussions with community members. And what we find from that work is exactly what you said, that when it works, it's incredibly powerful, but it doesn't always work. And so what I map out in the working paper that we're developing are kind of different ideal types of these social brokers. And the community correspondents who are carrying the cameras, I say, are sort of emblematic of a larger cast of characters who we can term social brokers, who kind of fill the space between frontline functionaries and government officials and citizens at the grassroots and are kind of moving in between. And I map out three ideal types. One is the mobilizer, right? The the person who's really good at grabbing the ear of community members, of sort of articulating, hey, there's this urgent need, but not only is it an urgent need, it's something we can do something about. It's an actionable need. And that's really important because a lot of people are acutely aware of their needs, but don't think there's anything that can be done. And so framing a need as something that's actionable which taps into kind of a sense of efficacy. I have my own personal efficacy. I I think this is worth doing because I think that I have the skill and the wherewithal to raise my voice. Also a sense of political efficacy. I think or believe or hope that the government system might be responsive enough to maybe hear my claim. So they're articulating these grievances for a very concrete example. Here's a broken hand pump for water. You could just throw your hands in the air and be like, yep, this hand pump's broken. Like it's always been broken. We'll figure something else out. We'll exit. We'll look for another source of water. Or someone can come along and convince you that that's worth fighting for. And it's worth articulating demands to local government for. And so those are the mobilizers, the ones who have the language and the framing and the kind of the deep local ties. They're embedded in local communities. People trust them. And they know how to talk the talk at the local level. They know how to communicate a need in a way that is resonant and actionable. And it doesn't sound like a pie crust promise or a fool's errand. It sounds real because these are locally embedded actors who can speak in locally resonant terms. So those are the mobilizers and they're great at bringing people with them. Some of them often have a lot of experience in in social movements, right? So they're organizers in larger movements. So they're taking that, that same set of skill and that same charisma of being movement organizers and applying it to kind of bring people with them at this local level. On the other hand, you have the type of community correspondent or social broker who I term the fixers. And they're the ones who are great at navigating local bureaucracy. They know all the officials, they've got their phone numbers, they know the offices to go to, they build working relationships with particular officials. They have the knack of framing local needs in a way that grabs the ear of the official. Officials are sitting there at the front lines faced with myriad demands, so many demands on a daily basis with scarce resources and constrained capacity, and also a lot of discretion. And so there's a lot of discretion, but also constraint in how officials can respond. And so these fixers come along and can effectively grab the ear of the local official, again, by framing, by taking the same need or information, but reframing it in a way that 
motivates action for the official, often by framing the needs as both urgent, but also legitimate, right? Convincing the official that this is actually legitimate. This is actually something that falls within your purview. This is part of your job. And then also convincing the official that there's something to be gained. And that can be extrinsic, right? You can get a reward or praise from your supervisors, but it's often intrinsic. So it's something like a sense of calling or pride. And so, you know, really in a sense, like massaging the egos of the local bureaucrats. So those are the fixers and they are savvy movers. They can move through the local bureaucracy. The perfect combination is the one that links demand and supply. So links local demand by mobilizing community members and links the supply of goods and service and service provision, the fixers who can grab the ear of bureaucrats and brings those together. And that's the type of actor that I term the interlocutor, the one who can speak to two audiences at the same time and can bring two sets of actors at the same time, one from the official side and one from the community side. And as you said, Ellen, it's incredibly rare. It's very powerful when it happens, but it's rare because you need this broker who is both locally embedded, who has those local ties and that local resonance and the local trust and the vertical linkages to local bureaucracy, the connections to particular bureaucrats, the skill set to navigate bureaucracy. And when you find the broker who has both of those, it's an incredibly powerful mix, but it's hard to come by. And I think what you're also pointing to, which is not only how rare it is, but it's, it's not really about the information, right? It's about the framing and the mobilization and the getting a person to believe either that it's their duty to respond or that they have the right and the wherewithal to make things happen, right? And, and, I, and I think it's really important because so much of the work on accountability has been about giving information to individuals and expecting them that, that they would then act on it, right? And less about the sense of efficacy that I can do something and therefore I want to act, right? or the sense of duty, and much more about just simply, does the official know that the citizen knows, or does the citizen know? And and a lot of people have made the point, which I think is correct, that a lot of times people do know, right? They know that over there, that the hand pump is working, and here it's not. I mean, the things you pointed out at the beginning, right? So information simply to say, citizen scorecards, you're doing worse than your neighbors, but I knew I was doing worse than my neighbors, right? So I think what you're really pointing to is exciting, because it helps to answer that question about when can information matter? Well, it matters when it's not just information, right? And it might not be the informational part of it that's unique, right? It's actually this, the framing and the telling a story that says we can do something, right? So it's a really great way to think about part of these issues that we've talked about with accountability, right? And in terms of how can people mobilize and what kinds of information, but really thinking about the part that that matters in a sense. Also really enjoyed the way in which you think about the partisanship or the non-partisanship of these actors, right? So you, you make the point that clientelism and much of the work on clientelism thinks about some brokers, but the brokers really are partisan brokers. And your point here is that these are very much political actors, but they're not necessarily partisan actors. And I think that's also a, a really important distinction to keep in mind and to help us to move forward in our thinking about how these communities do manage to solve problems and when they do. You have another finding, which I want to point people to, if that's okay. And we can come back to sort of how some of these things fit together. And that is in your forthcoming comparative politics article, where you're really thinking about a very different mechanism. So in this case, it's hearings that there are at the police, and, and I'll let you describe them in more detail, but that allow people to essentially kind of leapfrog some of the processes they need to be able to make a complaint and to have their voices heard. So can you maybe describe that process? process and the hearings for us and what they are intended to do? 
This is a really different project. In fact, it couldn't substantively be more different than the first project, which we were talking about, a network of citizen journalists. But what they have in common is they're both looking at accountability mechanisms or attempted accountability mechanisms. And this second paper, the comparative politics piece, is looking at a very top-down accountability mechanism. It's a grievance redressal platform called the Johnson Y, which is the public hearing, which has been implemented across the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh in northern India. And this is a weekly hearing that the chief minister of Madhya Pradesh has required every government department, so not just the police, but every government department, to have their senior level bureaucrat at the district level and at higher levels as well, be present in their office for certain hours every Tuesday. And the idea is that these higher level officials should open their doors to the public to hear complaints and grievances. And the interesting thing is that this grievance redressal mechanism has actually been modeled. The word Johnson Y, people's hearing or public hearing, is a model that's actually been lifted from civil society. So activists, largely in the state of Rajasthan, but elsewhere in India, have for a long time been using the Johnson Y, these hearings, as kind of social audits to call government to account and to read out loud in a public setting a list of grievances and to kind of put on the public record a set of complaints and misdeeds by officials. And the interesting thing is that over time, that civil society model of complaint making has been taken up by the state itself. And so Madhya Pradesh is not alone. There are many other states in India. It's sort of proliferating. And in fact, this is a global phenomenon of invited spaces, government-led grievance mechanisms that are creating formal spaces where citizens can come forward and make complaints. It sounds great, but what I started to wonder about, what does this actually look like and feel like from the perspective of the citizen? First of all, who goes? Who's actually utilizing these spaces? There's a presumption that if the space is there, people will fill them, but do they? Who fills them? Secondly, when citizens do take this actually rather brave act of stepping forward into the public sphere in the face of a senior official and articulating a complaint, what does that feel like? What sets of expectations does that provoke? And again, because we're talking Northern India and we're talking a uneven capacity and presence of the state to keep its promises, then those expectations are unmet, then what happens? So I wanted to sort of look at the act of complaining and the act of grievance redressal, but in a more dynamic sense, sort of looking at what happens after the act of complaining. And what I find is that it can be very powerful, but also very paradoxical. There's often an expectations gap between heightened expectations that are actually raised by the act of complaining. The act of complaining can instill a sense of hope and efficacy and expectation among the complainants who maybe for the first time in their lives are being given a hearing by a senior official. I write in the paper about the simple act of being asked to take a chair and sit down in the presence of a senior official, being shown that courtesy and respect can be the first time someone's experienced that. And this raises a kind of hope and expectation. And then those expectations can often be dashed against the more local reality of local bureaucracy that have capacity constraints, resource constraints. And so there's a mismatch between kind of expectations and promises being made at a higher level and what actually happens at the lower level. And so what I find is the rising of expectations during the act of complaining, and then very quickly in interviews that are just a few weeks or a month later, a precipitous fall in the assessment of that experience. Um, people become kind of even more depressed. So paradoxically, the act of engaging in a grievance redressal mechanism can make people feel more aggrieved. Which is actually really sad in a sense, right? The fact that it becomes that hope gets dashed so dramatically. 
Do we have any evidence about whether or not there's change over time in terms of people's interest in attempting these redress mechanisms? Because I can imagine that over time that the word spreads that don't bother to go because nothing's going to change, right? That you could actually see a decline in willingness to even attempt to use the mechanism. Have we seen any of that? That's a really great question. And I should say that the dashed expectations and the deepening of grievance is not uniform. For some, it's quite the opposite. For an important minority, it's quite the opposite. And what's really interesting about that is that it's some of the most marginalized groups of citizens, so in particular women, who are actually finding that their expectations of these grievance hearings are exceeded rather than unmet. And what I argue is that this is because for women in particular, where the state of Madhya Pradesh having faced some pretty stark statistics showing that it's one of the states where it's most unsafe to be a woman, is taking crimes against women very seriously and have dedicated police officers, CAW crime against women officers in every district have special funds, special programs, special help desks, which is another project that I'm working on. And so from a high level, there's real bureaucratic commitment to respond to women's complaints and policing. So when women who are some of the most marginalized come forward in these grievance redressal hearings, their expectations are often exceeded. And so they're they're the ones who end up being more satisfied over time. And I point this out to say that it's not uniformly depressing. And the fact that it's not uniformly depressing, I think is what gives people enough hope to keep coming back. To keep in mind that this is sort of one of the only games in town. If you have tried everything else at the local level, if you've gone to your local police station and the door is shut in your face, or even worse, you're threatened with physical harm or you're slapped or beaten, there's not much else one could do at the local level. So to level hop to a higher level is sometimes the only available option for those who feel blocked or stymied or stopped at a more local level. And so this means that even though you're right, that sort of over time people could learn this isn't worth it, then there isn't another alternative people keep doing it. And in fact, there's some really interesting work by Whitney Taylor, who works on a, in a totally different setting in Colombia on uh, formal legal grievance redressals in, in Colombia. She finds this sort of paradox that most citizens think it's a pretty worthless affair and lots and lots of citizens do it. So there's a disconnect. People keep doing it in large numbers and expanding numbers, but they don't necessarily think that it works. And what Whitney Taylor argues, and I think this is right, is people keep doing it because it's the only available option. It's not a kind of linear, like, I see that it works, therefore I'll do it. Rather, it's, this is the only thing available to me. That makes sense. And one of the things you raised, which is the issue of women, because you also mentioned this in the, the work on the community correspondence, right? That some of those who are more effective are also women, right? You often have women who are very well embedded in the community, but also in some of the cases where you talk about the ability to be kind of the perfect interlocutor, the one example you give is older women who have been activists and who have both the ability to go outside of the community and make those linkages with officials, but also have that kind of grassroots connections that that they can mobilize. So I found it very interesting that in both cases, there's ways in which women may particularly benefit from these opportunities to be able to make grievances or to help their communities address grievances. So it's a very interesting gendered aspect to it that you bring forth. I think that's right. And I think partly it's need-driven that 
the state and the bureaucracy in so many dimensions across so many sectors from basic service provision to policing fails women routinely in terms of provision of basic infrastructure like drinking water where we all know that puts a disproportionate burden on women in terms of violence against women crimes against women and so it makes sense that some of the most galvanized and savvy actors are women in responding to those deficiencies and in a setting like Northern India, that's particularly powerful because of a lot of the constraints on women's mobility. And so the act of engaging in grievance redressal and stepping into the formal arena of a police station to make a complaint to a senior officer, that's a really big deal for a lot of women in Northern India, where there's a lot of constraints on mobility and engagement in the public sphere. And so that makes the act sort of even more powerful and kind of raises expectations even more. And then when that's coupled with real bureaucratic commitment and those expectations are actually met by a responsive official at a higher level, that can create a kind of very powerful virtuous cycle. Quite the opposite can also be true where there's a kind of vicious cycle of taking this brave step and if nothing happens, then that can kind of hollow out your expectation. So one of the things I'm left wondering is how to think about the conditions that would make these sustainable, right? So we're talking about the grievance system. I mean, that's a program that's driven from above. Or if we're talking about the community correspondence, then that's an excellent program. It's really, really interesting, but it's still one that's very much driven in a sense from outside. And in fact, something didn't come up is essentially the correspondents are paid for, for the videos. So they're paid, I think you, you mentioned they're paid basically a half a month minimum wage salary for a first video that raises issues, and then they would be paid approximately a full minimum wage salary or full month minimum wage salary if they actually get results and can do a video that shows results. So in some ways, that it's quite a lot in this context, right? So those are great projects and programs, but how can we mobilize and how can we see the, the emergence of these kinds of brokers in the absence of such programs? Or can we? I think that's such an essential question. And it speaks to both the formal top-down spaces that are trying to create platforms for accountability, like the Grievance Redressal Program, and also the bottom-up citizen-led demand of the citizen journalism. Both of these are examples of pocket. As you said, it's an NGO-led initiative. Community correspondents are being supported financially by the NGO, which is really important in part because it breaks some of the need to tie into clientless or partisan networks where you could expect kind of a quid pro quo or payment, being able to rely on the NGO for financial support, in a sense, frees some of these actors to engage more outside of partisan networks, which is really important. But the larger point that you're making, which is these two examples from these two different papers, citizen journalism on the one hand and the police grievance redress on the other, are in a sense pockets of accountability in a sea where there's a lack of accountability. And so this broader question of how this becomes institutionalized, how this becomes scaled up, how this becomes sustainable in the long run is a really thorny set of questions. I think there are a couple of things that are important. And one is that there's a tendency in the literature on accountability to bifurcate. There are studies that look at supply, kind of what are bureaucrats doing and what holds bureaucrats to account and what motivates bureaucrats extrinsically and intrinsically. And then there are studies that look at demand. How do we mobilize active citizenship? What's the role of information and kind of provoking different kinds of political participation? And we don't have a lot that brings the supply and demand together. And I think for sustainability, that's what's necessary. 
we need to have dual simultaneous thinking about the causal chains that hold officials to account and the causal chains that motivate citizens and recognizing that those causal chains may not be the same. There may be really different conditions and really different causal chains at play that are motivating citizen action and motivating bureaucratic accountability. And there isn't a linear model that does both. And so for donors and practitioners and NGOs on the ground and for scholars of accountability to be able to think across both arenas at the same time and maybe fund both arenas at the same time, think about project design with both of these dimensions and not kind of ignoring the other one because, you know, oh, I work on the demand side, so I'm going to let someone else work on the supply side. I think for sustainability, it really has to be simultaneous and kind of taking both of those on at the same time. Fantastic. What else would you like us to know? Are there things that you found? Are there questions that you still think are important for all of us to be thinking through and frontiers of research that you want to put out there? This is going to be in my bonnet for a while. And I think I think it is a frontier of really exciting research. Is thinking about the feedback loops and intersection between citizens' expectations, kind of what they expect from government. <laughs> how that interplays with citizen action, how citizen action in turn does or does not interplay with the accountability and performance and responses of the state. And we see lots of evidence of both vicious and virtuous feedback loops and kind of understanding the tipping points, things that can push those different kinds of dynamics over time is really important. And I think what we need as a research frontier is more longitudinal research, right? We need more research that really studies these dynamics over time longitudinally because feedback loops are dynamic over time. And I think we have a lot of really interesting literature from advanced industrial settings on policy feedback and on feedback loop. You know, what happens with social security in terms of setting demands that activates a set of constituents that in turn lobby for the perseverance and maintenance of a particular... Per- we see that in advanced industrial settings and we see a lot less research yet, although I think it's starting to emerge, that also looks longitudinally at that interplay of the supply side from the state and the demand side of citizens. So that longitudinal work is something I would love to see more of. Thank you so much. It's exciting to see you uncovering more ways of thinking about how can we can understand this relationship between information and accountability and activism and opportunities that are given to citizens to address grievances and to work to better their lives. So I just want to thank you again. I hope that you stay safe and healthy in all of this. Well, thank you so much, Ellen. It's been really, really fun to talk about the work and thank you for giving me the opportunity. 